0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you young kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast.
2: Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify.
3: When musical theater historians look back at the beginning half of the 21st century, they will see how our modern times were defined by today's guest. He has given us so much to listen to in his incredibly illustrious and varied career.
2: Oh yes, he has given us The Full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, The Band's Visit, Tootsie, the theme song to wear in the world is Carmen Sandiego, and countless jingles, albums, and musical theater standards.
3: To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Kathleen Freeman, Jack O'Brien, Terrence McNally, Pally the Poem, David Letterman, and so many others, here is the man who inspired the world and the YouTube sensation, These Fries Are French, Tony Award winner David Yazbek. David, how are you today? My scrotum is tingling after that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll give you some penicillin. You'll be fine. <laughs> That's great. Have, okay, Dave, I have to. I have to start here. We're going to go nonlinear, but I'm going to ask you. One of my favorite performers is Kathleen Freeman. I thought she was such a genius. What was it like working with her on the full monty?
4: Well, when she came into audition, I was so excited. Like mm. this is my first show, my first musical. Um, but I've been a uh, you know like a comedy writer and just a fan and sort of you know maven of comedy all my life. Um, it's always been music and comedy, you know, and um, so anyone who is a, was as big a fan of The Nutty Professor, the original Jerry Lewis, Nutty Professor, and a lot of his other movies, as I was and am, would immediately recognize Kathleen Freeman as being this character actor. I'm, I'm also just this, I'm just such a big fan of character actors. Um, you know, I'll be sitting there. You know, with my wife, and she, I drive her crazy watching certain movies because I'll be like, "Oh, <laughs> that's Arnold Stang." <laughs> oh, that's Franklin Pangborn. You know, like come on. But- so Kathleen Freeman, who I actually knew a lot about, including the fact that she had been a, uh, I forget what studio it was, but she had been hired as a an acting coach. Um, even as she was this character actress doing comedies, there was a movie called The Collector. Um, that was just this really weird kidnapping movie that the uh, Samantha Egar was the star, was the kidnapped beautiful woman and that Kathleen Freeman had been her acting coach. So when when Kathleen Freeman walked into the audition, I said is it true that, <laughs> that you were the acting <laughs> coach? Anyway, you know, she played the old broad that um, Terrence wrote. It's a new character, not in the movie. It was really the this stroke of genius on his part, mm. to come up with this this piano playing woman who just shows up. But it's almost like she has radar that if there's a rehearsal for anything theatrical <laughs> going on, she will show up with a piano. And, um, and then yep. she gets to comment. And then she has this relationship with um, Horace, who's the middle-aged African-American guy um, about you know expectations of penis size, you know. So it's like he he structured this character, and then you get Kathleen Freeman who comes in. Who I, I used to have conversations about timing a joke. You know, she'd say, mm, you know, if he if he if he waits two seconds before saying the last word of that punchline, he'll get rolling laughter. She's always right about that stuff.
3: Yeah. Oh my God, almost, that's incredible. Almost a
4: genius at that stuff.
3: So. i i love her. so wait okay because i also like character actors who who is your like most underappreciated character actor that you're like oh boy this this guy this girl was the best
4: a lot of them are underappreciated i think my kind of character actors like jack warden
3: love jack warden wow. that's mine yeah
4: ned Beatty's probably one of the greats of all times he goes from network playing the uh playing the corporate executive who you know who, who uh yells at um at at uh, you know the crazy newscaster, to uh, and right before that did Deliverance where he plays you know squeal like a pig guy.
3: Um, everything he was in, he was great. Two of my favorites. Two of my favorites. Now you grew up, you said in New York, right? Yeah, I was born born and raised. What what part of New York? Well, I was born on the Upper West Side,
4: um, and was there until I was fourteen or fifteen, and then. Uh, my dad moved us to the Upper East Side to Yorkville, mm. and then went to college, and then I came back and lived on the Upper West Side again.
2: <laughs> what did your uh, parents do for a living?
4: My dad, uh, who's still alive, was a uh, clothing designer. Did well, had his own business. Um, my mother taught cooking and was a you know was a what they used to call a homemaker. Yeah, uh, um, of course. She was a spectacular cook, and uh, started teaching it, and had a, a nice shot, a wow. nice business doing that. That's really cool. So, when did the
2: arts and, and music and and this sort of love sort of get instilled? I mean, what sort of was the flame that that started?
4: Well, I you know I think you're born with it. Um, yes. But but certainly, you know, my father was a was basically a creative. You know, he was in a business, but it was a creative business, and he, I think, really wanted to always be a fine artist, like a painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very, very good watercolorist still, and mm. but went into business mm. in a creative way. My mother was a very good pianist, um, very very good, and uh, played, you know, a lot of the classical repertoire and, uh, uh, you know, and other stuff too. Of course, uh, not not really jazz, but you know, she played show tunes at a party, you know. Um, <laughs> And, you know, there we were in New York. My mother came from Long Island. My father came from Lawrence, Massachusetts. What brought my dad to New York when he was 17 was the fact that it was New York, a place where you could you go to Parsons School and at the same time go see every Broadway show for, I forget, like, you know, a dollar. you know, yeah,
2: at, at most. Yeah. Yeah,
4: like standing room. So the two of them were, you know, big, big, big. Uh, consumers of art um, mm. but also you know the museums and uh you know I I'm pretty sure I came out of the of the womb listening to things like mm-hmm. getting a yeah. lot of satisfaction out of listening mm-hmm. stuff but the cultivation the fact that my parents were valued that stuff meant taking me to
3: hear music and see shows mm. and, and um encouraging me playing do you remember the first show your parents took you to as a kid wow
4: no um i remember shows i just don't remember which was the first yeah Mm. i'm guessing the first was i do have a very strong memory actually of my mother taking me during the day to see a children's theater show like at the y on the upper west side you know And First. it was in a but it was in a theater with real lights. And I walked in and my mother, you know, like like many uh, New York mothers and yeah, and my dad was a designer too. So, you know, like I they they would dress me up sometimes. <laughs> Love it you know, like a little nattier than yeah. you know <laughs> so I was wearing this kind of knit Tam. You know what a Tam is that Scottish, <laughs> you know, with a little pom pom and um and I walked in with, with the audience and someone said, oh, can we borrow that? Like they wanted it for one of the characters. In the, so they borrowed it. And so I saw my hat on stage and then, and, and this was Pippi Longstockings. That was the, <laughs> that was the show. Oh wow,
2: there it is. And uh,
4: there it is. And, um, uh, and the Tam made its appearance. And then afterwards they gave it back and my mother was a little bit put out because there was like makeup all over it, and I thought, "Wow, that's that Tam really that was that was in the show." Yes, the fact, the fact that I remember that tells you something about my my relationship with performing and theater.
3: I um, love I I love that I love that. So, so who were some of your comic influences when you were growing up?
4: The the usual for people my age, um, George Carlin. When I was a you know. Young Teenager, uh, Class Clown was this amazing album. Just amazing. Just listen to it over and over again. You know, Robert Klein had some great albums. I used to listen to Smothers Brothers albums. Yeah. <laughs> but let me. But I want to get to like the big one for me. And this is not s- straight comedy, but when I was in school um, in New York, I had a music teacher named Stanley Gowger, who passed away maybe 10 years ago, who was who conducted the orchestra, we had an orchestra, and then also just gave classes during the day. And um, once or twice a week, we'd have these classes starting at a really pretty early age, maybe eight, where we would just sing songs from the Fireside Book of Folk Songs. So we were singing songs from all over the world. But he would also bring in records and play us stuff. And he he brought us, he played us two Comedy-based albums that I will never forget, and that I still listen to all the time. One of them was Alan Sherman, my son, the folk singer, which is a tutorial in comedy writing in lyrics. Um, it's also a tutorial in Jewish humor, um, and it's it's so brilliant that I still it's still on the top of my influence list. And the other one was Spike Jones. He played us a few Spike Jones uh, singles, oh, um, which is shows you how music can be funny mm. even without lyrics. But these were these tended to be satires. Um, but Spike Jones created this entire world of sound mm. that was hysterically funny. Um, so I wanted to mention those two, because no. music oh. and comedy
3: what tips could you pass on to someone about writing a lyric for a comic song? Like what, what are some of the, you know, do's the don'ts? No, it's tough. I mean, it's
4: the tips that I would have about comedy writing in general. And it's really something I really feel like it's not something you can, you can learn how to be better, but you can't learn how to be funny. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just on a call with a few people about a project, including a very, very famous comedian. And uh, I had read something that I I had read this, what something that this person had written. And I said, the thing I love about this is it's, it's real funny. It's not theater funny. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this kind of comedy that's inside baseball, even if you don't think it is to a a musical theater audience. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's not, that isn't, to me that isn't comedy you'll get away with it for 3 months on broadway <laughs> and then people will start coming in who don't consider themselves theater mavens and you're not going to you won't get away with it anymore um, my first suggestion is exactly the same suggestion but in a different field that i give to when i do master classes just about music or about musical theater writing which is just get your head out of the ass of musical theater. Just pull it out with a pop and get it into other places as much as you can. So if you're writing. So when I when I say that about writing songs for the theater, I say don't listen to musical theater for a year. Give yourself a a furlough from musical theater for a year. You can go see a show you know go see new shows but when you when you're home listening or when you're on the subway or whatever listening to stuff you're not allowed to you can listen to anything else anything um and you should listen to force yourself to listen to stuff you never thought you'd listen to uh cantonese opera um pygmy whistle you know field recordings like just this is all stuff that i would dig into constantly all through my childhood, high school, college, and up till now still. All I care about is hearing new sounds. That becomes part of you, and you can incorporate that into your writing. It's the same thing with comedy. Stop. You're going to start laughing at stuff that really isn't funny because you feel that it's right to laugh at it, and you'll internalize that, and then you won't know who you are. You know, I used to talk to Terrence McNally about this, who, aside from being one of the great American playwrights, was also one of the funniest American playwrights. And we would talk about, you know, who he liked. And it was Monty Python. And Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about Saturday Night Live episodes. And, you know, it wasn't certain kinds of droll plays,
3: you know, that you would see uh, in the theater. Because you're right. No, I mean, you're right. It feels like it can be a little bit, you know, non-universal. If it's, if it's like, I'm just going to keep making jokes that a musical theater audience is going to enjoy. You want to make sure. It's tribal. Um, It's tribal. Yeah.
4: And here's the thing. It's like, with one exception, everybody I've ever written a show with, every book writer has been a gay man. And without exception, all of them hated tribalistic gay humor. They said they'd say like, you know, and. To me, the lesson that I learned was in college, which was really, like, I really remember this well. And then later, I remember going to see, like, shows at law schools that friends of mine were in, you know, Mm -hmm. where all these great, all these jokes that were sort of uh, somehow about Professor Miller, or about how, you know, that dining hall is filthy, you know, all those jokes would just get these enormous laughs, you know, and that's because those were for that audience. And I remember thinking, if you were anywhere else, anywhere in this world, none of those jokes would land. Um, so uh, it's okay if you know that your audience has that particular tribal, you know, but the thing that that stories do and that theater does that's so valuable is even in a specific world, showing you something universal, um, Right, so uh, no matter what, if if it's a if there's a play about a, a, a African American family, and it's that's it, that's the whole play. What makes the play valuable to someone who doesn't share that exact history or that exact experience is what's universal in it. And when you find the universal in something that's, you're not totally uh, already know about um your head explodes Mm -hmm. you know that's what theater and storytelling is about
3: and when you when you write something who's the first person to listen to it do you is it do you go to your wife and go hey what do you think of this or do you go i'm gonna i'm gonna hold this i'm gonna show it off to the to my to my book writer to the director how does it work it changes all the time i mean usually
4: it's the usually it's my collaborator my the book writer if I were still writing like hour hour TV scripts and stuff, I Mm -hmm. probably would have a few people that I would send drafts to and ask for their advice. Yeah. Because that's a, that's like a tough, that's a tough thing to tackle. Um, if I'm writing a four minute song for an album of mine, um, I don't care what anyone thinks. I just want to, you know, like, I'm my own worst critic. So I'll just, so I know what I want to say and I know how to change it. But if I'm writing a song for a musical, well, when you're writing a musical, unless you were doing all of the lyrics, music and book and everything, you're part of a collective mind. So you need to um, send it around and uh, see if it fits with everything and everybody. You know, I'll play stuff for my wife if she asks me. But, you know, she she has her own thing and it doesn't it doesn't help me to play. it. it, yeah. You know, it it only helps if she's so over the top enthusiastic that it makes me feel better for my about myself for the next hour and a half.
3: Yes. (laughs) That's about how long it (laughs) lasts. I like that. Now where where was college for you? Where did you go to college? Um I went to Brown, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And you studied
4: My major was in English and American literature. Mm -hmm. Um I figured I really like to read and uh and it's fun for me. So um and I'm And I like to write, you know, so it's like, okay, I'll read a lot and I'll do some essays and that'll be it. But in the meantime, I'll play in bands, I'll do theater, I'll, um, you know, be in the chorus, I'll, uh, you know, have fun and and also take music classes and, you know, that kind of stuff.
2: Was there like a, did you, you know, when I grew up, I want to be this kind of mentality at all, even when you were in college, was there an overriding goal? Like, I am going to be...
4: I think in I think starting in high school, right at the beginnings of high school, I really felt like I'm gonna. It's either gonna be music or comedy writing. okay,
2: okay. so even then, or, comedy or writing, writing, was... writing, or writing. Yeah.
4: Okay. Like like maybe I'll be a maybe I'll be a novelist. Maybe I'll be a comedy writer. You know, but and not performing
2: or being an actor. No, or... no, performing music. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah.
4: All right. Never, never an actor.
2: <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, I just, you do so many things. So it's
4: like... I did a lot of acting in, in, in high school and, and some in college and, yeah. um, uh, didn't come as easily. Um, I liked it. I liked it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I liked the most was playing in bands. And it was that combination of creating and writing music and in, in a writing songs that I wanted to stuff to sing about, but also this idea of being in a group a small group of people who, who had something, a goal together. Um, right. so, you know, it was always like, it always felt like it could go any way, any way I could, I could, and, and it did, you know, like in college I played in bands and I could have easily gotten out of college and just gone right into trying to, you know, get a record deal and all that right. stuff. But instead, my friend and I applied. You know, we we sent in some ideas to the to David Letterman show, and we got that job. So then I was a comic huh. writer. So and in
2: college, you, you did that in college? You, you sent that off? No, it was, it was
4: right. It was I think it was the year after college. Oh my god! And you could just you would just you could just
2: apply and just send them your stuff, and you're like, <laughs> and no, that's no it we, had a, we had
4: it. We had we had inside information. Oh, um, okay. The way it happened was um, we were both in New York. I was living at my parents' house, and he was living in his dad's apartment. And we heard – he went to Harvard. Um, So the Harvard Lampoon was this big clearinghouse for comedy writers. Right. And he heard through the grapevine um, that a large number of the writers of Letterman – this is only the second year of the show – we're leaving to mm-hmm. go to do to create uh, a new show from Lauren Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night Live. So, like six guys left, something like that. Um, and I say guys because the uh, the world of comedy writing was it still is, but it was even worse then. It's so, I mean, there was one uh, female writer on that show. And that was Meryl Marco, who's kind of legendary. Um, and she wasn't really on the show when I when I got on. Um, anyway, I, was, wow. I always would look around. I'd say like, where where are the women? You know, like yeah. they were all in like they were like there were women producers and secretarial and stuff. But it's like where are the I know some funny women. You know, like right. what the hell's going on here? Anyway, um, and I I guess the Harvard Lampoon at the time, even though even though the president was Lisa Henson, the first female president of the Harvard Lampoon, still had almost no other women writing on it. Uh, So anyway, so that, that, that we heard that, that a bunch of people had left and they, they, we knew that, you know, come the end of the summer, they were going to need people. So we, uh, I remember I called, this is Ted, Ted Greenberg, who is uh, still my best friend, but was at the time my best friend and writing partner. We, uh, I said, let's, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to, he lived in this am- amazing apartment, like spread this giant apartment with a really well-stocked kitchen. And when I say well-stocked, I mean Intamin's chocolate donuts, like oh. like <laughs> many, many, um, and uh, I said, uh, and there was this one sort of den like room with a television. And I said, we're going to, we're going to start. It's a long weekend. We're going to start on Saturday morning and we're just going to write. We're going to put the television on, keep it on the whole time, eat a lot of shit and write c- jokes and ideas and long forms things. And, and, uh, and then we're going to do that for two days straight. And then on Monday, we're going to have hopefully a lot of stuff and we're going to, winnow it down. So that's what we did. And we windowed it down to five or seven pages and we sent it in and, you know, like six weeks or eight weeks later, we got the call and it was like probably professionally the most exciting day of my life. Yeah. That moment of like, Dave wants to see you. And then the moment of like, that means you got the job pretty much. And wow. You know, the actual job didn't live up to it, but that moment was great. But
2: you were like, you were like fresh out of school. You were kids practically. I mean, that is just. That I was happen. the
4: youngest. I think I was the youngest writer on that show yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, and it, then, was, it was great. It was, it was so, it was this great combination of ultra lucky, right? Yeah. Ultra lucky. And I mean, lucky from the point of view of from every point of view and, but also doing the work that like, we could have just said, like, oh, that's that's weird. They're going to need some people. Oh, well, maybe, you know what, maybe we'll call someone. You know, that's not what we no. did. We fucking did it, you know. Yeah. Love it. We
2: were to ask you before you applied yes. to uh, David Letterman. Because uh, it's
4: theater-based. It's theater so oh, good, yeah. When I, so when I was at Brown, um, i had always – one of the early shows that I saw was Hair on Broadway. Mm. And um, my parents had the, the album – They had the off-Broadway album and the Broadway album of Hair, and I used to listen to those over and over and over again, mostly because uh, Galt McDermott's songwriting and his music was so um, compelling and catchy and different, you know, Um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And uh, so when I was in college, I guess in senior year, I really had this very strong hankering to do a production of it. Uh, and there was a something called like something theater workshop or something where you could submit an idea like, oh, I want to direct this show. And I hooked up with a friend of mine who was a good actor, Sean, not different Sean. And we said, let's, we'll, we'll direct this together and I'll musical direct it. We'll, we'll both direct it, direct it. I'll musical direct it. And we did it. And, uh, and it was really fun, like tremendous fun doing all of that stuff and being just completely sunk into it. Um, so we did this production and because people got naked, we had lines for tickets just down this, you know, like, like in a school of 5,000 people, we had a line of, you know, like 600 people, you know, like crazy. And, um, We did it and it was, it really was good. I mean, we, we cast it with just the best people in the school and I don't mean the best actors because a lot of the people we cast it with were just people who wanted to sing. Right. And then we were like, okay, well then you're gonna play this part, you know, so it was a very uh, satisfying um, uh, production. And when when the summer hit, we were looking at each other thinking, what are we gonna do? And yep. I said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go to Boston and do this show in Boston. I, we were so crazy. We we sent a letter to Michael Butler, the producer of the original Hair, uh, who, made, you know, who's already rich from Butler Aviation, but who made tens of millions of dollars because he was the producer of Hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, we said, we want to do it. We, we have this production that went well here. And we want to do it in Boston. And... Um, and then we sort of sent it, I forget how we sent it, but we sent it. And then it was there in the ether hanging there. But in the meantime, we raised $2,000 somehow. And at some point, my, the, the guy, the other guy let, he said, he said, I can't do this. I can't, it's, it's like too much of a risk or something. Like he had something else to do that was more of a short thing or something. I don't remember. We found a theater we 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 found the Hasty Pudding Theatre in Cambridge. You now <laughs> realizing that, oh well, it's they only use it twice a year. You know, we can use it all summer. And we brought up the cast and we got an apartment like a like a, oh a single God. floor of a house in Somerville, and it was 20 people living in three bedrooms or four bedrooms. That must
2: have been out of control. It was
4: it was insane. It and insane. all day we wake up in the morning and you know start post we'd rehearse, we'd poster the town, not even knowing if the show is going to be good. <laughs> um, we would do stuff like get on subways and sing and then hand out pamphlets. And this all led up to opening. And then we opened to a full audience and we got one great, we got some good reviews and one great review wow. from a guy named David Edelstein, who later became like a New York critic. Um, yeah like big big deal. Yeah. And, and then we got like two or three great television reviews. And all of a sudden we had a show. <laughs> um, and then Michael Butler finally <laughs> sends somebody up to see to see the show and this and then we got another X number of dollars to help us run. So we ran for a while and it was wow. It was a lot of fun and it was it was successful and it was empowering. Very empowering for me and for You
2: learned me. a lot too. I mean, just you were like producing and directing it. And, and musical
4: directing. I mean, and music directing. Learned a lot in every respect. Learned a lot mm-hmm. about what's satisfying about theater, mm-hmm. what's satisfying about creating, what uh, what it, by playing those songs over and over again, learned something about writing songs. Right. And then the most important part of it was learning what's important about collaborating by doing it right and doing it wrong. Um, and what it means to be to lead a group of people, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes I'm a leader and sometimes I'm a, in the group that's being led and sometimes I'm equal collaborate, you know, you have to be able to come in and out of those roles all right. the time in theater. Right. Um, so it, I wanted to talk about that because it was very, it was an important yeah.
3: That's huge.
2: Mm, just breezing along with a breeze. Breezing along. Hey Lucy, where's Viv this weekend? Viv's back at the studio. She's helping to donate to Patreon.com and keep behind the curtain Broadway's living legends on the air. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. In front of the curtain, behind the curtain, all the curtains. Oh, that's a terrific idea, honey. We better pull over and donate. Yeah, we better pull over and donate.
3: Open a new window. Who told you to sing? Um, I want to jump back a little bit, if I can. So, what was it like working on the Letterman show? This was his the twelve thirty slot show, right? On NBC. Yeah, late night. Yeah, late night. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um.
4: It. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I had liked it, I probably would have ended up like everybody else, moving to LA, and because we all we won an Emmy award, like we. Yeah. We a, yeah. We sort of. I looked into it, you know, like when you're writing with a bunch of, you know, I think there was a staff of eight at the time. And I think we won for, when you win those awards, they're ostensibly for one episode, mm. right? Like they say this episode, but yeah. I guess, I mean, I guess we're, we were all part of it in that we all wrote that whole season and, and you're sort of being awarded for that, but the episode, which was really great um, was really mostly written by uh, Chris Elliott. Um, well, I yeah. love
3: Chris Elliott so so much. Well, he
4: was he was quite a writer, that's for sure. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. Incredible writer.
4: So I mean, you know, we we in in some sense we all hitched our you know, hitched our wagons to him at, at least in terms of that episode. Mm. But we also, you know, I mean, collaborated little things to, you know, Fun with Velcro, which is sort of like a legendary <laughs> yes. show. Yes. Um, yes. Custom made show is the one that that won the Emmy. Mm -hmm. where every aspect of the show was voted on by the audience. Um,
0: That is so cool. It was just,
4: those were the days of like really interesting experimental, like, I can't remember who came up with this idea, but there was one episode. It's so, I I don't remember who, I wish I could give credit for this. And I didn't even, I don't think I wrote anything on it, but um, we did one episode where we announced that there's been this amazing technical breakthrough, which is that the entire picture of the show that you see on your screen will slowly rotate an entire 360 degrees. But it happened over the period of an hour and a half or however long that the episode was. So I guess an hour. So very incrementally and with almost imperceivably, the picture on your screen would just rotate. So by... Halfway through the show, everything was upside down, <laughs> so and then it was all the way up. And so then the question was, how do you write to that? Right. You know. So when things were like upside down, you know, I think, I can't remember what I think maybe Paul Schaefer said. I'm getting a little sick, and I'm going to throw up. You know, it's like that kind of. <laughs> yep. Anyway, uh,
3: were you able to write music while while working on that? I wrote a couple
4: of songs with with Paul, um, uh, and I saw Paul. Like, the last public event I was part of before the lockdown was Gilbert Gottfried's 600th episode celebration for his podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was also his birthday. And um, so, and I I sang a song at at that. It was like, it was at the cutting room or something. Yeah. Big I, yeah, he's and Richard kind was there and like a lot of people I I know really well. And I was at a table with uh, Paul, Paul Schaefer, who I I see once every five years, like just accidentally. Right. Um, but. I was remembering the songs we had written. Uh, we wrote one song <laughs> called we just wrote one song called Thank You, Ed. That was a tribute to Ed McMahon for picking the Star Search spokesmodel of the year. Who was a guest on the Letterman show?
3: Yep, I love there it. you go.
4: I think I wrote three songs while I was there. That was that was it.
3: So how did how did you go from doing all of this to writing your first musical, your first Broadway musical, I should say? This is an eclectic, varied career. Very eclectic, which doesn't always serve.
4: Um, but I'm glad. I'm looking back. I'm very happy. Yeah. Um, after Letterman, I hated the job. I really hated it. Um, After like the first month, (laughs) it wasn't, what what about it was like the, the,
2: uh, not enjoyable
4: as I love collaborating and it wasn't, it wasn't collaborative enough.
2: It was just like,
4: come on, spit out the ideas and then, and then we'll reject 90% of them. You know, Mm -hmm. the rejection was okay. It taught me how to sort of take that kind of, you know, be able to not be precious, but um, just wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. Gotcha. Um, so after that, I bought into uh, a recording studio with a couple other guys and did that for a while, just sort of did music. Right. We, ended up, we ended up falling into doing a lot of jingles, yeah, um, which was uh, really fun briefly. And then about a year in, I realized if I keep doing, and it was very lucrative, and I realized if I keep and
2: you were doing, doing synthesizers and computer software at this time, not to get nerdy on us, but, like, I mean, you were using music software and not, you know, because, you know, we're, computers were, like, you know, they were present, but, you know, Finale, Sibelius, all of Logic, you know, all these tools that we have today. Oh, that
4: was all... No, Yeah, no. I mean, so it, it, I started, I, I learned going way back yeah. um, when I was, like, 14 or 13... We had uh, one of the teachers at my school had a girlfriend, or was maybe trying to get her to be his girlfriend, who who he invited to come to the uh, to the assembly on Wednesday morning, and bring her massive Buchla synthesizer. Buchla was like one of the pioneers, along with Moog. Um, yeah. So she so she brought it, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just like totally blown out of yeah. you know my mind is blown because it's this massive machine with all these plugs and stuff and she's doing sounds like not just you know synthy wild sound so i asked her can i take lessons so she sort of let me hang around and gave me some lessons on this Buchla synthesizer and then when i got to Brown, they had an ARP 20, 2600 and they also had a um, the very first Sinclavier uh, digital. So I, have always done electronic music. So you
2: always Um, catch, um. yes,
4: that makes sense. And at the studio, we actually got, um, we actually convinced Kurzweil to let us, uh, demo, let us use our studio as a demo for their first extremely expensive and extremely bulky, uh, symphonic synthesizer. So we had it there. So yes, we used okay. a lot of synthesizers.
2: All right. Thank you. All right. So you had your own recording studio and then you I could record it.
4: other people's stuff. You could record your own stuff. You
2: had a place we to did play.
4: A, we did a lot of jingles. It was, uh, you know, we ended up being a 24 track studio with a really good mixing board. And, mm. uh, my friend Billy Strauss was, who's a, was and still is a great producer, engineer and musician and songwriter. Um, mm. and, uh, we just started doing lots of jingles and, uh, we had some friends who, our age who were sort of coming up in the advertising world. And all of a sudden we're doing beer commercials and all this stuff. And, and it's very attractive because it's very lucrative, especially right. if you're singing on them. And I sang on, on some of the dr- jingles and um, and then I realized I'm going to have a nervous breakdown if I keep doing this. So I stopped and made a bunch of, uh, I had been making my own songs. So that I basically had a demo reel. And that demo reel led to, plus a series of showcases with a band that I put together, led to a record deal mm-hmm. with Capitol Records that I got a few records, a few uh, songs produced in England with my absolute legendary hero, Andy Partridge from XTC, mm-hmm. who's still one of my absolute idols but then that deal fell through but then i got a different deal and like that so that started this other career
0: hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low
1: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
3: Ch-ch-chumba.
1: ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how did, how did you get involved with the full Monty then? So, all right. So that's what we're getting to.
4: So I did that for a while. You know, like, I, I was still writing, too. Like, I wrote some stuff for HBO and I wrote some uh, a lot of children's stuff because it was really easy for me to write children's songs and scripts. Right. Um, but I was also touring, like, with my band occasionally, like, doing these East Coast kind of loops and finding it really frustrating. It's really frustrating to be a piano player on the road <laughs> carrying a fucking, you know. Yeah. So, yes. Um, so I, I was having a conversation with another... Um, great composer when i say another i mean um who you may, you might have spoken to i'm not sure adam Gettle. no i know you guys are friends but we have not talking talked to him yet adam adam and i were in a band briefly in new york when he was 20 and i was 25 oh my gosh called wow. barn and <laughs> he played bass and he was great and um he sent me last year this sort of remastered demo reel that we made which I will I will put out at some point because it's Amazing. so weird it's Amazing. so it's so weird. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was called I called him cuz he had had Floyd Collins was off Broadway and I'd seen it and I thought this is yep. this is the real thing. This yep. is what. And uh so I called him and I said, "Look, I can't stand touring anymore. It's just this this whole thing. How do you do how do you do how can I do a show? Mm. And he's, because I, I was thinking maybe I'll go to a workshop, one of these ASCAP workshops or BMI or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he said, Nah, that's not for you. You're already a songwriter. You should just jump in. <laughs> I was like, Well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah. How do I jump in? You know, he's like, Jump in with both feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought that's not helpful. Um, but a few weeks later, I got a call and they had been looking, they meaning Jack O'Brien, the direct, the eventual director of the Fulmati, and Lindsay Law, who was the producer. Um, and I guess Terrence had already been signed on as the book writer. They're looking for someone who wasn't the usual suspects. And they went to him, which was smart because he's a brilliant composer, but also not the right fit. And he knew it. And we had just had this conversation. He said, "Why don't you try this guy?" So, I had some albums out, and they bought the albums, or I guess they bought them because <laughs> did. I didn't send it. And um, and then they called me, and that's how it. That's how that happened. Uh, started working with Terrence and with Jack, and we started talking about it. And we went out to San Diego to have a meeting with Jack and Terrence. And Jack O'Brien has this. Two year calendar because he was the artistic director of the old globe, so the calendar had all the different productions that he was directing or not directing, and he points at like July 20th, which was like that day and he goes this is this this is a year from now he points to July 20th of the next year he says we're going to be in, we're going to start rehearsals then so we went from zero to sixty in a year, which for uh which I didn't know that that was yeah. You don't do that, but you do do that when it's Terrence McNally and when it's me not doing anything else. Like if if everyone could just do one, if you could just concentrate on one thing, you could easily do that. And that's what happened with that. <laughs> <laughs> what well, did, did you have
2: to like learn how to? I mean, i I know that writing music and lyrics, you know, it's sim it's similar when you're writing a, your own songs and all of that. But now suddenly you're forwarding the story, you're having character development, all of these elements, you know, that might be a little different than you know the the cool songs that you have on your. Well, your
4: album. I was I was well prepared, having sort of having directed and been part of a sh- of a of, of a show earlier on, right. having been in and written some plays in school, having written, you know, half hour and one hour TV scripts. Sure. And and a movie script. And so the storytelling, the structural stuff, I sort of had, but I still learned, I was bumping into walls about what a song should do. And I just learned by making mistakes and realizing either internally or with the help of, you know, these professionals like Jack and Terrence who, you know, knew more than everybody else combined ever. You know, like there's there's no better school than that, right? I
3: was, oh my god, that's like a masterclass. Yeah. What's one or two lessons maybe that you learned from that first experience that you still take with you today?
4: I'll give you two. Great. Uh, the first one, uh, I went in. I kept hearing like these catchphrases about how you write a musical. Uh, you have to have an "I Want" song, you know, like those kind of things. <laughs> yes. So I went in saying. I'm not writing a fucking I want song. I'm just not doing it. You know, we're going to have a show that doesn't have an I want song. We of course we ended up with an <laughs> I want song. You know, like it's just a word I want, you know, like yeah. that was that was the first lesson. There's a <clears throat> there's a reason why people say this stuff. And if you can break the rule great, but you know, it it was me being it was just me being rebellious, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, but and then the other lesson was really really a big one that I revisit on many shows, um, I wrote a song in the second act for the wife of the main character. Now, if you know the Falmonti, it's you know the, the the female characters in that show are very important, but they're secondary characters. It's a it's a show about five guys dealing with their insecurities, dealing with their circumstance, mm-hmm. and they end up stripping. They end up becoming male strippers. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a song for the women in the first act that was kind of like a, a, an empowering song called It's a Woman's World. Mm-hmm. Um, that song's fun, but it's also really important because you have two of the male characters hiding in the bathroom, hearing that song and being just, like, terrified. The concept of it being a woman's world, which it is there because the men are out of work and the women aren't, um, is terrifying to these sort of guys, these Yes. You know, so in the second act, I wrote a song for Jerry, the lead character's wife. Jerry's Jerry got put in jail. There was a raid because they were practicing stripping or something. It's just it's in the movie that that element. And the wife bails him out, and it's you know like this guy's a real fuck up. So she's sort of like, how are you gonna how are you gonna be how can you be a father if you're like this Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. jail? And because he's been to jail before too, and I wrote this song where she's sort of—it's a ballad and she, she's singing about what happened, you know, like you know we had such a lovely honeymoon. It's called "Made of the Mist," and this is this takes place in Buffalo, so you're near Niagara Falls and made of the mist. So when when the song was sung in the workshop by Dana Reeves, Christopher Reeves' th- widow, who's yeah. now also passed away, um, she sang it so beautifully mm. and. I'm looking around and I'm like, "Wow, they're crying!" You know, like I've written a lot of songs, but I've never seen people crying. You know, so I'm feeling, you know, patting myself on the back. And
3: mm-hmm.
4: and then we go to we go to San Diego and we're in rehearsals. And when I first start to get to see the whole show with all the songs, I start really start getting this little bug about that song. Mm. Like, what is it about that song? It's still good, but you know, then when we go into previews she sings that song and the, I look around and people are crying you know it's not it's no longer Dana Reeves it's um Lisa Dats, and she with a such a beautiful voice and she's singing it and then we're in previews and I'm realizing something I'm realizing that that song probably the best ballad I had ever written was ruining the momentum of both the story and the comedy. And it was taking people five to 10 minutes to get back into that. Mm -hmm. And that was destructive to the piece. Mm -hmm. And I remember like having this realization and saying to somebody, oh God, we're gonna have to cut the song. Mm -hmm. And I selfishly, I was thinking, oh God, because you know I was proud of the song, but I was also thinking someone's gonna have to tell this woman who's singing it so beautifully that we're cutting her one song. And, you know, that's no fun. But this was a lesson. And the lesson is sometimes you can write a great song. It could even be the best song in the show, and it has to go. Big lesson, you know. Um, yeah. And I've been wrong about that, too. Like in Women on the Verge, I wrote that song Invisible, which Patty LuPone sang yeah. so, so well. <clears throat> but before she sang it, I remember as I – it's a story song. And <laughs> as I was singing the demo, I remember thinking – this is boring, this is so boring. Like, this is just this long story and it's just, it's a little too poetic. Like there's too much, and I was, I was, I told Jeffrey Lynn, I think, I don't think we should put this in. I think we should cut this song. And he said, no, let's just see, <laughs> you know, let's see. And then I saw Patty LuPone singing it and I realized, oh, if, some, if someone's acting it and singing it right. right, it really works. And the same thing, On Tootsie almost happened with um There was John, which is a ballad that that Lily Lily's character um it's just another story song. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, we gotta cut that. It's just it's static. It doesn't do anything, it doesn't do anything. But you know, she sang it well and it did tell her story, and I was wrong. So that's the other thing you gotta realize, is like
2: Willing to admit you're wrong. I mean, just the, that alone, those words. Yeah,
3: oh,
4: yeah admit you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, willing you know
3: to yeah. yeah. When you're working on something like that or you're working on something like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels where there's, a, there's pre-existing source material, do you go and you watch the film and you go, oh, that moment could be a song? Or do you go, boy, they're missing something here. Maybe we can make something out of what's missing. Or how, how does the, that process work? It's
4: definitely both. Um, yeah. The process begins, well, I'm going to use Dirty Rotten Scoundrels as an example, um, so full Monty was up and running and I was like, you know, actively thinking, what do I want to do next? Mm. Um, and I actually tried to get the rights to Car Wash cause I thought, oh yeah, really eclectic, you know, like rainbow cast with all <laughs> kinds of different music. I'll have a great time and we'll, we'll actually have like water on stage. You know, like I had all these ideas, yes. but I couldn't, I couldn't get the rights, um, And uh, I'm watching television and uh, I see Dirty Rod Scoundrels and I have a similar feeling of I could write, and this is just an instinct feeling, you know, like an instinctive feeling like, oh, I could write really just lowbrow, filthy, you know, scatological funny jokes and songs. And also tr- write like sort of try to channel Noel Coward and mm-hmm. Cole Porter and write really highbrow stuff, and that would be really fun. And that was the initial instinct. And then in in studying the movie with my both by myself and with Jeffrey Lane, realizing, huh, there's a there's a depth to this that they don't really go into in the movie that we could go into a little bit, and even if we never mention it. So Jeffrey was saying like. We, both of us were really turned on by this idea of what does it take to be a really good con artist? It takes this, this incredible mixture of, of empathy and predatory. <laughs> you know, like how can you be ultra-empathetic and also predatory? And what does that mean? And what does it mean when you let someone in? And it just became really much more interesting. Just proceeding with that in your mind, all of a sudden you start spackling things that you might see as holes in the screenplay. A movie can get away with a lot because of close-ups and, you know, any movie with Steve Martin in it, you're getting away with murder <laughs> all the time because he's he brings so much to the table. So it started as instinct and it and it went into something
3: more concrete. How do you like to work with your collaborators, especially the, the book writer? Do you like to be in the room? Do you like to, you know, can you write me a song about this? I'll go off and do it. How does it work? I, I,
4: it's it varies um, with Terrence. It was um, you know we we watched the movie together. Um, we spent some time together, but then he wrote a he wrote a draft without me around, and I wrote maybe three songs without him around. We all got together. We did a reading, um, but I wasn't in the room a lot with with Terrence. Uh, Jeffrey Lane really likes to be in the room in the same room, and we found ourselves in in each other's pie a lot, and I was helping him. I mean, not helping him in a, in a way that should be unusual, just helping him as a collab, as an author. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With like, Oh, well, structure and, you know, even sometimes joke. I would contribute jokes and stuff like that, which is, you know, which, and vice versa. I mean, he, he came up with some of the best titles of those songs. Um, and, uh, uh, But we wrote a lot of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels when he was on the West Coast and I was on the East Coast. Then we got together. Women on the Verge, we were together a lot. Mm. Um, Robert Horn, we were, it was both, but there's something, there was always something really incredible about that collaboration. Like if there was, if we felt like there was like a knot that couldn't be untied and we just said, all right, I'll, you know, he was in LA. So like, all right, I'm coming, I'm coming to LA for two weeks and, you know, six hours together, four hours together, we would just like, we would untie the knots. I mean, we really worked well together like that. We've spent six months just figuring out structural issues and character issues. Um, that, that was a very satisfying collaboration. And Itamar and I weren't, we weren't together much at all, um, until we got into
3: workshops and rehearsals. Um, so it's, it, it just varies. Do you like to be around in the rehearsal process or do you like to go away for a little bit then come back and see what's going on? What's your preference?
4: I, I still don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> you know, like I really don't. Like I'm always afraid if I'm not there, I'm going to get yelled at. And if I am there, I, I don't need to be there. You know, so I just, I tend to just be around. Like I don't live in the city. I live about an hour north. So when we go into rehearsals, I ask the producers to get me an apartment, you know, or a hotel room or something. And I'll be in I'll be in town a lot of that time. So I can at least be available. I like to be there a lot of the time because you get ideas. And you know, in a show like uh like Tootsie, let's say, just as an example, <clears throat> you know, I'm watching. Lily Cooper sing, and I'm like, "Ooh, I think I can do something mm. for the way she sings." Right, I love her voice. Or Santino doing a certain thing and realizing, "Oh, I could do this." So, you know, or in "Dirty Rotten Scoundrels," having been in rehearsal with with uh, Lithgow, and and when it when it was clear that I had to write a song for the two of them near the end of the show, um, there was something about just seeing him every day that. Made it easier for me to write that big sort of yeah. number, um, and then sort of ironically, when I was writing it in this giant rehearsal room, I thought I was alone, but he told me that actually he had snuck in and he had been sitting there for like an hour while I was coming up <laughs> with the groove for it and writing it. Lithgow did, which that's I love. Cool. I just love that. I just think that's. I so love cool. that. Yeah. yeah.
3: And what about your relationships with orchestrators? How how involved do you like to be with the the orchestration process? Um, you know,
4: the first orchestrator I worked with was Harold Wheeler, who is just legendary. Like, my God. He's like <sighs> it
2: was my first exposure. I can't to believe like, you got to work with him on your first show. <laughs> like it's crazy. Jack
4: O'Brien, Terrence McNally, Harold Wheeler. I mean, like what? <laughs> Andre DeShields. Yeah. I mean Kathleen Freeman. Like I feel like crying thinking about oh, it because it's so amazing. I, I really loved Harold, and um, he would just I can't remember like everything he. I don't remember how involved my demos were. Some of them were pretty involved,
2: and some like of like adding other different. instrumentation and you know yeah like different.
4: horn like horn lines. I, I love doing and uh-huh. he was, but he but he he just added so much to that whole score and. I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. There's a song, um, Oklahoma question mark is a song in that. Oh no, no, that's in dirty. That's Bird- he also did dirty Ron Scoundrels. Scofil- uh. <laughs> and, and, uh, he just added this one little bending. Oklahoma. And then he added like, Oh Jesus. That's like, he's like adding a great joke every chorus, you know? Anyway, um, I mean harold ultra eclectic you know like obviously like quincy jones you know could have could uh he you know he 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 arranged for great big bands great funk stuff great um jazz stuff uh but you know he could he could have he could arrange in any style anything i can say Escavel and he'd be like you know, I got it. Yep. And literally that did happen, you know, or Martin Denny or Nelson Riddle or you know, uh Quincy mm-hmm. Jones. So anyway, he so he had all that going, you know. But he gave me some really good advice because uh I, I was talk we were talking and his respect for me was like the respect a professor has for an idiot savant. You know, like I'm I'm ultra exaggerating. I think I, know, but I think still. Harold respected the fact that I had such eclectic tastes.
2: Yes,
4: and 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 I think he liked my tastes in in jazz and classical music and, yeah. and rock music. But um, I remember saying the one my biggest regret is I don't know how to sight read piano music. You know, right? And he said, "Don't learn," because I, I was like, "How do I learn?" And he goes, "Don't, don't, don't do it." <laughs> it's like. <laughs> what do you mean don't do it? He goes, don't do it. Cause your fingers are going places and your brain's going places that you, that people don't usually go and you want to keep doing that. So just maybe stay away from the notate, you know? And I was like, you know, but I want to play, I want to play Chopin. You know, he's like, well, sorry, you know, <laughs> yeah it was it was really interesting advice you know That's really
2: um, good. Because, you know I'm a piano player as well and I sight read I don't have I don't play by ear and i always feel like the one always wants what the other has and then there's like a handful of people who do both those assholes that they, they can sight read and they can play by ear like so beautifully but um, yeah those are
4: those are those are, i'm very jealous of them but yep, see, this is interesting to me cuz there are a lot of amazing arrangers yes and a lot of amazing musical directors who have skills that i could i'll never have who can't write a song, and I would—I'll give—I'll give up everything to be able to write a good—a good hook, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and I've had, you know, I've had people—people people who are friends of mine—who are, um, you know, a couple of guys in England. Who one guy in particular was like, "How do you do it?" And I was like, "What do you mean? <laughs> you know, you—you you do everything." And he goes like, "No, how do you write a song that's really a good song?" And I was like. I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> I can't tell you. I'm sorry. I, it's like, can't tell you. I can tell you, you play me your stuff and I'll tell you why I, it, I think it's good or not, but I can't tell you how to do it. It's like,
3: yeah. that's that's the gift part, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So, so David, what's what's coming down the pike for you? What's next? You know, a lot of stuff got put on hold. Um, yeah.
4: Aside from the Tootsie Tour, uh, aside from the band's visit which had been out for about a year, ago, you know. That the next year was postponed. Um, that was that was that was a tough one because that show is that show is bringing a lot of a lot of light to to people. Like that shows that has, show has a mission and a message. And, Everyone should
2: and see that show. Every middle school, every high school, it should be. I'm thinking that when I walked out of that theater, David. That's oh, real, thank I, you. All together, uh, and we were just rocked by it. Yeah. You know,
4: we we made. Uh, we used to make Chrome David Cromer, who's just like probably my favorite director yes. alive, and uh, and Itamar and I used to make this joke. You know, as as the show progressed and we realized we had we were onto something, but we make this joke during rehearsals, and the joke was, and that's why our show is so important, which is, <laughs> you know, which is how everything has been promoted these days. Yes. I mean, everything, Hadestown, Town, you know, all the shows, you can't get away without saying, and that's why our show is so <laughs> important. That's why you have to spend far too much money for a seat <laughs> this big to see our show because <laughs> the world needs you. To. So <laughs> we we made that joke over and over again. And then we're watching the show at one point uh, after it opened, and, and I'm with Edomar, and he says, he turns to me, he goes, you know something, our show's pretty important. <laughs> 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 and, and I'm like the story you know that's because the story which is comes from the movie is mm-hmm. so beautiful and because we service that story so well yes, um, and we have a cast that's showing you not just not just telling you they're showing you something so i hope that i hope that tour gets to go back up um we had we were making plans for a, a like a european tour not not individual <clears throat> productions but a tour that might start in Israel and then go oh, all over the world. that's great. Same company. I thought that was Orn Wolfe's idea. Great, great producers, very smart guy. Um, um, I was working on, we had done a great reading of The Princess Bride, um, yeah. Disney, uh, which I was writing with Bob Martin and Rick Elise, and they just they, just honored, they honored William Goldman's book and writerliness really so well. And, uh, I'd written a bunch of, a bunch of good songs and we did a wonderful, seems um, like a good fit. (laughs) It was, I mean, it really, it's really good. Like, uh, I have no reservations about it. We, we were getting ready to find the right director and we were getting ready to, uh, you know, maybe go into rehearsals for something in January, but that seems like it's gotten pushed back at least a year. But there's one show I'm writing that's just very, very weird and with Itamar Moses, who wrote the Band's Visit book, but also Eric Della Pena, who's the guitar player in my band, who's a great songwriter. And it's about it's a subject that I've been really obsessing about for about 20 years, and I wasn't able to somehow get into it myself. So I just... Told Eric the story, and we just started writing songs. So,
3: so you're writing this with somebody else. You're writing the score for this with somebody else.
4: Yeah, and what's interesting is we're we're. It's not like I'm doing the music and he's doing the lyrics or vice versa. We're just we're just doing whatever, whatever. And then he'll that's exciting. No, oh, it's great. He sent me um, so much trust. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've been playing music with him for a long time. I know how good he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, he sent me. Uh, the very first thing we worked on together, he he sent me this beautiful, beautiful uh, demo, just music. Mm. He's a guitar player. He plays guitar and lap steel and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. he sends me this thing and it's gorgeous. And the lap steel is playing the melody. And I'm just like, sat down with it. Probably took me about an hour. I wrote a a set of lyrics to it. And it was just like, it's just the perfect blending of the two. Mm. And then, later I did this exact same thing I sent him this piece of sort of martial sounding music and he just sent me back lyrics so it, great collaboration in the meantime you yeah. Moses is, is trying to tell the story in a way that serves you know what we want to do musically uh, and it's a true story so he also wants to serve the story itself you're busy He's, yeah, a, well, he's a busy man god yeah there's another thing I Oh yeah, there's a film there's a couple of films film pieces film projects too which uh, which is like the thing you need to be doing right now especially yeah. an animated film. Yes, of course. Uh, so we can all be gathered together again in yeah. theaters, you know. Well, we
3: look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, we do. David, this has been such a joy for us.
4: Oh, you, we really went on, didn't we? <laughs> no, <it's laughs> you gave fantastic. us so much time. I finished my whole smoothie too. Oh, yeah. Like
3: really good. <laughs> that was our goal. That was our goal. This is this has been absolutely great. But you know, seriously, from Kevin and I, thank you so much for creating such fantastic work, but also such eclectic work that brings mm-hmm. such a unique voice and a unique way of looking at the world into our world. It's great. It's really fantastic. So thank, thank you. you. Thank That's you. Very for-
4: really it's nice to hear time. at this at this stage of things. It's a very very. Uh, very uh, empowering thing to hear. I really appreciate it.
3: We appreciate Thank it. You. Thank we, you. we appreciate you. Alright, listeners,
4: Till next time. Fuck Trump.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode, and a big thanks to the Punchy Players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for
3: us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki.
2: And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in.
3: In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just
2: one star and you can make us feel as baddy, baddy, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in boston where annie dreamt that she was being adopted but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it
3: yes and it was betty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already did